Let's ask for God's help, will we? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We thank you that it discloses a God who is the same yesterday, today and forever. And we pray that you help us to be able to not just make sense of this story, which seems quite clear in its meaning, but to be able to see ways that we can both apply it to our lives and also share the message it gives with those who are looking for answers in the world around us. And we pray for opportunity to do that and to be equipped to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. So what do we do with a story like this? It it comes from a time in history 2,600 years ago when Israel is in captivity in Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar, who's probably the greatest ruler of the time and governs the whole of the known world to that part of the earth, uh, what is it that we can both find comfort, encouragement, perhaps even challenge to grow in our relationship with God? What is the essential message here that is relevant to the world around us? I think they're very important questions to ask from any parts of the Bible, but these stories that we often read to our children, let's not underestimate the importance of them. To have a big picture of the message of the Bible that is particularly focused on the God who is the creator, the one who made all things, the one who has a purpose in his creation, even in a fallen world where so much happens. And we're constantly confronted by that, aren't we? Wendy and I have just got back yesterday from uh, not a planned trip to Dubbo where uh, we attended the funeral of her father. And, and you think, I was thinking, of course your, your mind goes back to the past, doesn't it, in those occasions. And I'm thinking, wow, it's nearly 40 years since I met Wendy's dad. And now I'm older than he was when I met him. And at the funeral, of course, there's people you haven't seen for many, many years. And one of the ladies said to me, oh, I thought it was you, Graham, but you look so old. <laughs> and, then, and then she said, then I remembered what I looked like in the mirror this morning. And I thought, yeah, that would be you. <laughs> uh, change is inevitable, is it not? Not just change in our own lives and not always change that we would choose. And so we find ourselves in that generation now where we've got a granddaughter. So children come back into your lives because they want you to help with (laughs) their children. And then my parents live with us. So there's been great change where we now feel like we're the generation, in a sense, holding the reins of life for different people. What happened to the last 40 years? And when you think about that 40 years, I think of those 40 years then you think of the change in society. You know, you hear people asking for prayer in their professions because they're saying, how can I get past being a professional in my job to share the message of Jesus with the people I work with? Forty years ago, you could have done that because there's still that prevailing sense that there is a God and there's a Bible that's relevant. But today, Christians are marginalised. We used to set the moral standard for society Now we have people setting a new moral standard and expecting all to obey it. Uh, What their authority is for that is quite unknown because our authority is the Lord himself. And yet there's good things that happen. Change isn't always bad, is it? You know, we we saw the Berlin Wall come down in, in the 80s which is probably irrelevant to many today, but that was a big thing, you know, to see this wall, a symbol of communist power and privacy come down. 
And yet today there's the threat of the Islamic community, which uh, I think we should be encouraged to see as a mission opportunity rather than a threat to, to our well-being. But nevertheless, it, it does provide some sense of uneasiness. So change, personal change, uh, cosmic change, if you like, if you can believe everything that's said about the climate. There's so many things that can concern us that can change how we feel. Put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Here's a guy taken as a boy into captivity. And now as an older man, he, he, he's still in captivity. And he's serving God there. And he has a voice there. Isn't that amazing, as we, we see in this passage? But what's it like for him? Where is God in those situations? Has God changed? Well, now, here's two things in a changing world that never change. One is God. The other is human need. Now, we sometimes forget that, do we not? We, we live in a world that says we don't need God anymore. So what is our message to them? What is it that we as Christians can offer them that they do not have without God? Why do they need that message? Well, Daniel 4 is really going to help us see some answers to that. Three main points, and I'll state them again as we go through. The first one is an absolute truth we need to know. Secondly, a dream we need to understand. Thirdly, a restoration we need to experience. So the first one, an absolute truth we need to know. And this is the point of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 because that's how the chapter begins. In verses 1 to 3, and here's the king of Babylon who rules over so many parts of the known world. So he writes to the peoples, nations and men of every language who live in all the world. Now, people say the Christian Judaic God has nothing to do with other cultures. Well, Nebuchadnezzar disagrees. This is a universal message because this is the God overall. In verse 2, it is my pleasure. What a way to begin a message to unbelieving, godless people. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. This is a word of testimony. This is a word that he wants to tell people. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. He's the greatest king, ruler of the time, singing the praise of God. He could sing Colin Buchanan's song, could he not? Nebuchadnezzar is not the boss. He acknowledges it, that he's not in charge, that there is a greater power. What a wonderful message in a world that needs an answer to so many questions. There's no one greater than the Most High God, sovereign over heaven and earth, true 2,600 years ago in Babylon, true today. And when we're enjoying life's pleasures and feeling proud of our personal achievements, we need reminding of who's truly in charge. This is going to be Nebuchadnezzar's key message to us. Same if we were Daniel and his friends captive in a foreign land while wicked governments seem to prosper. It's an increasingly the situation we feel in the West. When we experience loss, grief, great disappointments, there is a boss over history, the Most High God. Let's see how this 
testimony came to be Nebuchadnezzar's. As we consider a dream, we all need to understand because the first thing it reveals to us that Nebuchadnezzar learned is that there's gods out there that can't help you. And when we think of gods, we need not think of the idols that are made to look like some creature, gold idols like Nebuchadnezzar made in chapter 2 of Daniel. Uh, We think of things that replace God in our lives. They're the idols. Does it not interest you when people call an actual talent show Australian Idol? Because people not only idolise those who do the judging, they want to become the one that's idolised. We all have gods, everyone in this whole world. But look at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. Now there is that saying in Australia, isn't there, that a man's home is his castle. And Nebuchadnezzar's story sounds a lot like the great Australian dream. To be at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. See what we said at the beginning, that some things never change, that is human need and how we try to fulfil it. If we don't have God, we try and fulfil our need for contentment, prosperity and idol in another way. And many Australians would say, of course, God has nothing to do with it. I got here through my own hard work. Australia is a place of self-made people, which isn't really true, is it? When we have a nation founded on a Christian work ethic and an ethic that was about working together for something greater. But Nebuchadnezzar not only thought he was the boss, but that he had everything he needed. And God shakes him up in a dream in verse 5. And palace and prosperity and little g gods could not help him then. Look at where he went for answers in verses 6 and 7. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream but they could not interpret it for me. Interesting, is it not, that in chapter 2, Daniel was the only one who could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream then. But he's not the first one that is consulted for answers now. He still goes to the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners of his Babylonian gods. Because you see... In one sense, no one would doubt Nebuchadnezzar was the boss. After all, he's conquered all the other nations. He's conquered the Assyrians who conquered Israel and all the nations then. Now he's the boss. And Nebuchadnezzar's own thinking is that it's because of his gods. His gods were more powerful than Israel's god. Therefore, he must be the boss. So he goes to those that he attributes his success to. Where do you go? When there are things beyond your understanding and control, things that make you sad, things that unsettle you, things that threaten your contentment and prosperity. It's a really important question. Wendy and I were talking about on the way down here because often we go to the things that don't satisfy us at all, that can't give us answers to the biggest questions. Now, we shouldn't think there's no place for doctors and counsellors and financial advisors, shopping, holidays, even Google. There's a place for all these things that give answers. 
But when we're thinking about the big issues of life and death, contentment, relationships, when we're thinking about meaning and purpose, those issues, then there's no substitute for God. There's only one most high God. At the end of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar calls him the king of heaven. So you see, there's gods that can't help you in those times. And I think there's a sense with professionals working in their field today. We worked in the city where most of the people in our church were professionals and there's this sense of frustration at times because you you feel like there's more to offer as Christians that you can't give. I come back to that later on. But there is a real sense in which with all the advancements of the modern world, there are still unanswered questions for people. And you know what? That's why we are not just postmodern today. Modern world has disappointed people from politics. Medicine can't save us from death ultimately. Education cannot educate hatred out of people's hearts. There's a sense of limitation to anything that man has produced as answers to the real needs of humanity. To a point where we now live in a post-truth world because we don't want the truth, we want what feels like truth to us. And yet it's still temporary, it's still empty. It still won't give the answers to the eternal questions that people have. See, there's something very relevant about these stories in the Bible that transcend culture and time and issues to confront us with the fact there is but one God, the King of Heaven, sovereign over time, over history, with answers to every circumstance in life in terms of what God wants to say to us and teach us a need for a creator. And so in this dream we need to understand, we first find there's gods that can't help, whether they be material gods or whether they be the horoscope and the spiritual kind of gods that people go to today. A dream you need to understand, gods that can't help, but there is a God who helps. In verses 8 to 9, notice it says here, finally Daniel came into my presence. Now we We don't know, Daniel would have been called with all the other magicians and enchanters. He was part of this team of wise men. And we almost wonder if Daniel tried to stay last so that Nebuchadnezzar could try everyone else and see that they had no answers. Uh, Finally, Daniel comes in anyway. And he's told the dream and he has an answer. And in verses 10 to 16, we've read about the dream. In fact, he's a bit repetitive about it as he explains what happens. But there's this dream of a giant tree that spreads through the world, providing for all the creatures under its branches. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is a little bit unlike a lot of kingdoms because, you see, he did provide. People who lived there were well cared for. Even the captives were well cared for. There's a sense in which he wanted a prosperous kingdom because that means you've got no rebellion. He tried to assimilate people so that there there would not be this sort of uh, cliques, nationalities and religions. So this was a prosperous kingdom. Babylon was one of these places that held one of the seven wonders of the world. It was an incredible place. And Nebuchadnezzar was like this tree. 
But then there's this strange twist in the dream, isn't there? It goes from this tree being chopped down to a king who's going to be driven to live for seven years as an insane person like an animal. And there's a purpose in all this. The God who helps is a God who warns. It's a God who wants to teach us something as he lets us, as Romans says, as he hands us over to the gods we choose to experience whether they're actually good gods or not, to discover something very important. First of all, that if you think you're in charge and the story of the universe is about you, you're dreaming. Because it's not. It's about a great God who wants us to know him. And the message is very clear from Nebuchadnezzar. Don't wait for God to cut you down to size. Daniel both preachers and interprets. We have two preachers in this chapter. One is Nebuchadnezzar, the second is Daniel. In verses 24 to 27, he gives the interpretation. And it's not just an an interpretation, uh, a delivery of facts. He actually preaches and urges the king to respond. That's a true sermon, is it not? O king, this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. There's an amazing point in this that Nebuchadnezzar will find his true identity when he finds it in the Lord. Isn't that one of the big issues of society today? God wanting to help us requires us to recognise that we can only find ourselves in this world when we find ourselves in him. And we'll see that at the end of the chapter as Nebuchadnezzar is restored. But Daniel then urges Nebuchadnezzar. He says... Therefore, O king, verse 27, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that prosperity, your prosperity, will continue. Isn't it amazing that Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful, self-sufficient king of the day, finds an answer in Daniel, a captive in Babylon sometimes we feel a bit captive in the world we live in we feel we don't have the freedoms that we would like but he's a man who lived without compromise for the Lord and God opened doors for him to speak we should be confident like that that even in a world that wants to shut the door on Christianity that there will always be a voice even when we feel captive to a culture in order for us to speak for God. You see, we'll stand out. We'll have a message no one else has. And like Daniel, in dedicating our lives to serve the Lord and to show a heart for people and for the glory of God, there will be open doors to speak. Well, friends, there's a wonderful message here even for the Nebuchadnezzars, the proud, the arrogant, all the people of this nation, even those today promoting what we consider to be wicked and very self-directed for pleasure alone.
there is a message of warning, but a message of hope. That you can know God. And maybe it's through suffering, like for Nebuchadnezzar, that the reality of that will dawn. One of the things I think really lacking today, even in the church, is a sense of a theology of suffering. Because we live in a world that says, I go to a doctor, I get a painkiller, if I'm hungry, I open the cupboard, I press the microwave, everything is instant fix. That we feel as if there should be an instant answer as well. But you know, the reason Jesus has not returned according to 2 Peter 3.9 is because God is patient, not wishing any to perish. And you know, Peter's message is also to a suffering society, particularly his own people. Why do we suffer? Why do people suffer? It's that we might see our need for God and turn in repentance. So friends, there's something in that, in in a Christian worldview of a creator, a fallen world, where we have an answer that only God can give. But there's a warning in that. If that is still you, if you have not yet submitted your proud living to God's sovereignty, don't push his patience too far. Because in this dream we need to understand there's gods that can't help. There is a God who can help. But he's not a God to mess with. And we see that in verses 28 to 33. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven and decreed the fulfillment of the dream and nebuchadnezzar ignored god's warning 12 months has passed now that's pretty patient god isn't it you wonder if daniel was that patient but daniel was a man who trusted god waiting to see what would happen And here's Nebuchadnezzar's boast. Instead of acknowledging then that God rules, he claimed everything for himself, even the glory of his kingdom and position. Be a good rival to people like Donald Trump, would he not be? (laughs) His ego and boasting. But here's the thing, there's a bit of Nebuchadnezzar and Donald in all of us. Rich or poor? self-made or failure, successful or not, when we make the purpose of life all about me and my happiness. You you listen to Australians and there's a sense of entitlement instead of a sense of gratitude. You know, as Christians, we can do the same thing. When suffering comes, when something we worked hard for seems to be taken from us, we can say, why God? But it's not a question saying, I want to know you better. It's a question saying, I don't deserve this. We live in an age of iPads and iPhones and i-everythings. And we want an i-God that we can press a button and say, give me my happiness. And if it doesn't make me happy, you have no right to give it to me. And that's when we are no different to Nebuchadnezzar. I deserve better. I've worked hard. I deserve this. I've even served you. Why are you doing this to me? To have a sense of entitlement 
before the God of heaven who gives us every good thing and who only allows suffering for our good. And you see what the suffering has revealed in us at that point? That I am proud, that I'm arrogant towards God, that I am boastful as if I deserve something better. It's very easy to see the proud of the world, but are we willing to see the pride in ourselves? Are we willing to acknowledge in that moment that I deserve much worse, not much better, from the God who made me, but I live as if I am self-made? He's a God you don't want to mess with because like with Nebuchadnezzar, despite his great patience, the day will come when we will have to pay for our arrogance and pride if we continue in it. But friends, here's our third point. We've looked at the absolute truth we need to know about God and his sovereignty. A dream we need to understand that that other gods can't help us in the biggest issues of life and death. But there is a God who helps us. But he's not a God to trifle with. He's a God to acknowledge in his sovereignty and greatness that we are not deserving, that we need to be grateful that he gives every gift, every ability, every opportunity and every outcome, whether it be suffering or prosperity, that we might be drawn closer to him. And that really leads us to this final point because it's about a restoration we all need to experience. And Nebuchadnezzar himself became a preacher of this God's sovereignty as he's restored by the Lord himself. And you'll notice there in verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. You notice at this point, nothing's changed in his circumstance. It's not that God has put him back on his throne, prosperous and well again, sane again, and then he goes, oh, well, thank you, Lord. No, it's in, it's in his humiliation. It's in his moment of turning his eyes to heaven and saying, you are God, not me. It's about your glory. It's about your story, not mine. It's about what you deserve rather than what I deserve. And then, in verse 36, at that same time, my sanity was restored. We need to be very careful, quoting verse 35. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now that's all very true, but it's in a context, is it not? When it says all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing... It's in terms of their power, their success, their achievements, their, their glory, if you like, compared to God's. Because otherwise it would make nonsense of the New Testament that says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It's not that God doesn't care for the world. It's a statement in context about who is the boss. Nebuchadnezzar is not the boss. You are not the boss. I am not the boss. The story of history is not first about me or about you it's about God and his great purpose to save Nebuchadnezzar had a position of power for a purpose and if you read the rest of the Old Testament you realize he was God's servant to punish his people that sounds severe but when you think about where that leads 
you realise how important it is. Not just for Nebuchadnezzar personally, because he is restored, he becomes an instrument in God's hand willingly now, but it's also about the people of God and their restoration to realise that idols have led them to captivity, but God is going to lead them to become part of his eternal plan to save. You see, all of this story is about a bigger plan. It's about a bigger purpose in God's eyes. Even that Nebuchadnezzar can preach to us today and say, be warned, but be encouraged to know there's a God who forgives, a God who can give you an identity in whatever he's called you to be and to do that is much better than finding your identity as the world does in its own success for its own praise. Now you know, as I know, that Colin's song declares that Jesus is the mighty, mighty king. Jesus is the boss of everything. And that's where the Bible, where God's story leads us, does it not? Because God's disciplined people are restored, not in the sense that they hoped to Solomon's kingdom status, but to be the people that the Saviour could be born to in fulfilment of his promise to Abraham that there would be a seed of Abraham who would bring blessing to the nations. Israel is spared from assimilation, spared from utter destruction, even under the hand of mighty kings of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and then all the others that came, the Greeks, the Romans, that Jesus might be born, that Jesus might die to take God's judgment for our sin. And in his resurrection, he's exalted to rule over all. Jesus is the boss, but he's like the undercover boss. You know, the one that comes alongside and understands how hard it is for us. The one who wants us to find our place in God's story forgiven, but with a job to do. You know, Australian culture is one that lives for me and for now, like Nebuchadnezzar did. So we need to step back in the story. We need to, like Nebuchadnezzar, be able to peel back the clouds and see that there's a God who rules over all with a purpose to save. And it begins by acknowledging him as the king of heaven who can then equip and empower us to be part of those who proclaim this message. Whether we feel we are the minority trapped without any power or whether we feel like Nebuchadnezzar, we can proclaim it to the world because he had that freedom and power to do so that whether in Nebuchadnezzar's situation or in Daniel's situation, God is the same God. Whatever our circumstances, God has not changed. God has a reason, a purpose to bring us closer to him. And maybe even in our broken circumstances that we might have a message for others. As we come to a conclusion, let's just consider this bigger story a bit further. Because, of course, Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar ruled is just a pile of ruins today. They're still there. You can see where the gardens, the hanging gardens were. You can see the size of the city and even the fact that it was built with huge stones. All these things that took enormous effort and wisdom. But it's a pile of ruins. Isn't that a message to the world today? The powers of this world, those who would set up a different kingdom, a different authority to that of God himself, those who would live in opposition to God and his people. 
We're not going to read it now because it's a long chapter, but you could read it later. Revelation 18 speaks of another Babylon. Here's just a couple of examples. Verse 3 in that chapter says that Babylon is a place of adultery, of excessive luxuries. Verse 24 in that chapter says, In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints. So here's a place like Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon that is prosperous. It says excessive luxuries. It lives for pleasure. It's a place of adultery. In other words, morality is not respected, particularly God's morality. His purpose for sexuality and marriage. It's a place where God's prophets and saints are killed, destroyed, if, he, if they could. Of course, in, in the first instance, it's a reference to Rome in the first century, a place where many Christians died, a place of excessive luxury that actually led to the downfall of Rome. It's a reference to a place that opposed God because they wanted many gods, not one god, a place that sought to destroy his people. Here's a wonderful message, both in Revelation and in Daniel 4. Both Babylons could not stand before God. Both are destroyed. Both are doomed. What a message for us who know the Most High God, the King of Heaven, to not fear the Babylonian powers of today. But in that chapter, there's a very important command. In Revelation 18.4, the command is to come out from her, that is Babylon. Now we would think, first and foremost, that's a message for those who are yet to acknowledge the King of Heaven. And of course, that's a true statement. But actually, the command is to God's people. He says, my people, come out from her. That doesn't mean we become monks and nuns locked away in some monastery um, away from the world. It's not saying that. It's saying to come out from her in terms of the adultery, the excessive luxuries. It's that kind of coming out. It's very important for us to have a message for the world today that we are not just mirroring the world of today. How can we say to those caught up in Babylon not acknowledging the God of heaven, come out when we are in there just as much as they are. And it's a terrible thing, and I don't say this to hurt anyone, when the church, when the Christian church looks no different to the world around it, except on Sunday when we give up a couple of hours to come here. When our marriages are not showing the difference it makes knowing Christ, when our families don't show the difference it makes knowing Christ as king, When our purpose for living is no different to the world in terms of excessive luxuries. Can you see the point? How can we represent the king of heaven if we're making the kingdom of this world what we live for? Now that's for you to work out before God, not for me to dictate to you. But here's the point. If we truly acknowledge the king of heaven, his glory, his honour, the gifts he gives and the purpose he gives them, to be like Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar proclaiming this king to the world, then the world first needs to see the difference it makes knowing the king of heaven. And, you know, I'm sure we've all seen wonderful testimony to this. And you've probably been a wonderful testimony to it as well. In the face of disappointment, in the face of crisis, in the face of relational difficulties, in the face of sickness and death, 
that there is hope. There's a wonderful part of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that should be the motto of every Christian because it says to set apart Christ as Lord. Now that's what Nebuchadnezzar was called to do. That's what Daniel does. He sets apart Christ as the Lord of his life and then it says to be always ready to give a reason. It's the idea of making a defence, if you like, of the reason we have a hope. See, we have hope. If there's one difference a Christian should display to the world is hope. That we do not become disillusioned and broken and giving up because of the hardships we face. Because we have a king who rules over all. He gives good gifts. Sometimes he brings suffering. And I think the suffering of the church in the world today, or always has been, not just to purify the church, but to give us a message that no one else can give. And isn't it interesting that the suffering church in the world grows faster than the church at peace? We shouldn't be too quick to say, Lord, don't let suffering come to Australia. I don't pray that, by the way. But, but we should be more concerned. I, I say there's a better prayer to pray. It's the Lord, prepare us, equip us to be people who can show the difference you make in this world, whatever comes. If suffering comes, that our hope does not diminish. In fact, it will get greater because we have nothing to live for anymore in this world. Friends, think about how you can show the difference this week. It makes knowing Christ. I said I wanted to come back and I'll just close with this. As we think about our role in the world today, Christian professionals can be very frustrated at the ethics of those they work with. We saw this in the city constantly, saying, you know, we've been told to maintain clients who don't need to see us again and all these kind of things. As Christians, I wonder sometimes if we can take one bold step and that is to say to people, I'm this, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm whatever I am in this world, I'm a counsellor, I'm a, uh, a member of the, the school's parent committee as a parent. Can I just take that hat off for one moment? Because there's boundaries to my professional role, to my role in this setting. But I want to ask you if you've considered the other areas of your life that people can speak into. And in a private capacity, I'm happy to take that up with you. Uh, I think there needs to be some sense of boldness. Daniel himself took risks at times. Now, it's trying to honour the roles that we have while trying to honour the King of Heaven and let him take care of the consequences. We need to be wise. I'm not saying be unwise. I'm not saying be silly about it. I'm saying let's ask that God would give us wisdom to know how to represent him in a world that badly needs that answer. To know that there is a God in heaven who rules, who wants us to know him. But we can only know him by acknowledging there is another dimension to life than physical, mental, emotional and financial, which so many things revolve around. We're not saying don't go to a doctor. We're not saying don't go to an advisor of any kind unless it's just something very ungodly. But we're saying, have you considered there's other people who can support you in areas of life that is outside the boundaries of my responsibilities here? I pray that God gives you wisdom and some boldness in how to do that and the right context to do it and time to do it. 
So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts here today. Um, We might be here with different circumstances, different things we go back to when we leave. Lord, perhaps there's even some here, like Nebuchadnezzar, who have not yet acknowledged you. Maybe not because they are wealthy and prosperous, maybe because they've suffered and are wondering how God could allow that. Pray, Lord, that you will call us out of Babylon. Help us to be able to live and to show the difference that makes knowing you in a way that's going to make people take notice, to see that the gods they worship do not have the answers that they seek. Lord, I pray for those in their work who just see such great needs and wonder how they can be part of declaring you to them. Give them wise words, give them opportunity, and Lord, we pray that many, even in this community, may end up worshipping you here in this church. And Lord, help us all. You know what you've called us to be and to do at home and in this community going to other parts of the world. Help us to represent you well and to be able to declare as Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel did that there is a God in heaven. And so we pray, Lord, take and use us to fulfill your purposes today. And even for our children, Lord, help us as parents and grandparents to show the kids how important these stories in the Bible are, that they might go into a world without the great anxiety that so many children have today. Help us to be part of answers, Lord, and that your rule would be seen in your church here, in your people here, and as we go to serve you, be seen in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.